Welcome to Technology in the Mind, a podcast dedicated to exploring the intersection of psychoanalytic ideas and our experiences with consumer technology. Each episode, we will interview a psychoanalyst about different aspects of the conscience and unconscious effects of how we use technologies on our minds, relationships, and society. Please welcome your host, Dr. Nicole Zapien, a psychotherapist, psychoanalyst, and consultant in the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to Technology in the Mind, a podcast where we interview a seasoned psychoanalyst each month about contemporary psychoanalytic concepts applied to our experiences with consumer technology. Today, our guest is Dr. Mitchell Wilson. Mitchell Wilson trained as a psychiatrist and is the current editor-in-chief of the Journal of American Psychoanalytic Association. Dr. Wilson has published widely on a variety of topics that cohere around a theory of ethics, desire, and the psychoanalytic process. His book, The Analyst's Desire, The Ethical Foundation of Clinical Practice, was published in 2020 by Bloomsbury Press. He's a training and supervising analyst at the San Francisco Center of Psychoanalysis and a personal and supervising analyst at the Psychoanalytic Institute of Northern California. He's in private practice and leads study groups in Berkeley, California. Today, Dr. Wilson will discuss aspects of materiality, embodiment, and proximity as this relates to technologically mediated relating. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Nicole. I look forward to our conversation. So do I. You raise really interesting ideas in your forthcoming paper about materiality, proximity, and embodiment. Can you tell us a little bit about your thesis in that paper? Sure. When I was trying to think about how to introduce this whole idea, it really starts with a chapter in my book. It's about the innkeeper, the psychoanalyst as innkeeper. If on a winter's night, a traveler is the title. And the idea of the innkeeper is one that I'm, I think is a very, uh, productive sort of fecund concept in that it captures the the time-honored uh, many millennia old fact that human beings have traveled for help to seek help from others often because they're in danger or they're in need of something like food or fuel or respite or perhaps the psychoanalyst help in this case mm-hmm. so in thinking about the innkeeper and the patient who travels That then involves where the patient's traveling to, where they're traveling from, that they're moving their body through space, often at great risk, and that when they arrive at the innkeeper's abode, you know, office, they're asked to give an account of themselves. They're asked to represent themselves in some way. Tell me what brings you here is the sort of fundamental question that clinicians ask of their patients, and not just the first time they meet, of course. It's implied every time they meet. So with that in mind, the traveling person going to visit a stranger, and that strangerness part is, of course, sort of uh, structurally key in the whole engagement in psychoanalysis, that there is an unconscious, et cetera, that we would call a certain kind of other scene And that means that we're strangers to ourselves, importantly, and also the person before us can never be totally known, of course. So all of that then was called into question, it seems to me, by the COVID pandemic and the sudden move towards 
remote working for more clinicians. Of course, many of us had been working remotely to some extent by phone or by Zoom prior to COVID. But with COVID, everything was called into question regarding meeting in person. And that's when I began to think about how enduring is this innkeeper metaphor? How applicable is it now in 2023 compared to, let's say, 10 years ago? And I do think there is an important, this, is, this gets to the paper now, uh, an important irreducible sort of fact about meeting in person. And that's what the paper is about. What meeting in person can offer that remote working cannot offer. Hmm. So you've got me thinking, I started to, as you were talking about the innkeeper, I was thinking about what it means to just click and then be in another's presence. There's still the strangeness of the other, and there's still the unknown and so on, and the help-seeking, but it's immediate, and there's no travel. And I wonder, or, or certainly not, it's a microsecond, right? And it's not tangible in that way. So I would love to hear what you think is entirely not replicable about the in-person meeting. Yeah. So the literature on remote working or teletherapy is robust, of course, and quite varied in terms of what clinicians describe regarding the dynamics and complexities of meeting via some kind of non-in-person medium. And most of the literature is pretty positive about what can happen. And of course, there's a democratization of psychotherapeutic work because folks who live in distant places can find ways to meet therapists online. That's all to the good. I described three cases in the paper, and, and these are, by the way, meant to illustrate ways in which I think in-person meeting offers something in these cases that meeting remotely can't. So the first is the case of a patient I call Thomas, who was a martial arts expert, firearms expert, who told me, he didn't tell me right away, but he told me fairly quickly at the beginning of our work together that he scanned rooms for weapons, including my office. So this is somebody who is very alert to danger, is not taken in by, from his point of view, sort of the pablum of sort of white privilege and imagining one's safe, you know, when one, from his point of view, was really not safe. So he's looking at my office and he sees heavy objects and he's telling me about how he feels safer with me because he knows that ready to hand, he has access to something to protect him. Now, there's a whole sort of elaboration of that case in my paper, which we could talk about if you want. But my basic point is a very simple one in that particular case, which is would this patient and I have to engage in this question of safety and bodily harm if we were meeting remotely? Hmm. Yeah. So that's one example of where the proximity piece seems so crucially important for me to help this guy, because his whole world is about danger. You've got me thinking about two different potential, really interesting ways of considering this question. So we will never know what would have come up in the analysis of this patient if you met them remotely, whether or not it would have also given you, you know, maybe he would have rambled around in his room via Zoom and you would have seen 
that he's also scanning and quite worried about his safety in that way, or he would have told you stories about that, and it maybe wouldn't have registered in the same way as as if you were proximal to one another in the same room. Maybe he wouldn't have been frightened at all if he weren't in the same room with you, if he were in his own bunker house or something, as I imagine. But then I flip it the other way around, and I imagine people who come to our offices and they're relatively fine with that. But once they meet online, we see a whole other area of paranoia about technology. Could it go the other way, where we see something new about how they interact with technology and how they imagine that medium impacts them? And maybe we get to then see another aspect of them that we wouldn't otherwise see. What do you think? I think that's a super smart comment. (laughs) I think that that makes lots of sense. I haven't actually had, I'm trying to think now, have I had a meaningful, not just a moment, because we've all had these moments where, and they're fairly common, right? Where a patient will say, oh, there you are. Or, oh, I thought I lost you. Or, can you hear me? Are you there? Mm -hmm. All of those sort of things. And I have had a a patient every once in a while worry, probably because they themselves had this thought to do this to me, that I would just through a keystroke click, make them disappear. It's sort of like the ejector seat. But I can't say that those concerns or comments have been elaborated into something that's sort of usable analytically. But of course, I could easily imagine it to be usable. I just haven't had that experience. I had a patient who reconfigured my Zoom settings so that it would be to his security satisfaction, which I thought was really interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm not technologically advanced enough to really understand what he did. We used his Zoom and he configured it because he was uncomfortable using mine or Doxy or any of these other commercial things. And it's fascinating to me. That's where the question came from. There was a, a different kind of understanding of like, oh, He's teaching me something about his inner world. Right. And his concerns about surveillance, obviously. Uh huh. Who can listen in and who might be. And who's in control of the hour and the frame and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was a lot there to work with. And when we meet in person, it's rather ordinary. That wouldn't have been part of what I would have understood, I think. But who's to say? You know, maybe it would have come up in some other way eventually. It's funny. The road not traveled. Do you think maybe it's useful to meet with all patients in both? types of venues just to check these kinds of things out and see what the transference is like? Yes. Yeah. Ideally, even those folks who, you know, I'll just speak for all of us, certainly for me, that if I'm meeting with somebody, let's say, who lives in a different city on the phone or online, I will encourage them to try to make a visit so we can meet in person. And usually then that means meeting a couple days in a row or meeting for two hours at a time, or maybe meeting two hours and then take a break and then meet again. So real intense work. Well, it's important to be flexible and to see what, it depends on the the given, the specific situation. But I do think it's important to meet in person every once in a while, if that's possible. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So I want to go back to the innkeeper for a second, if we might. You mentioned that some of these ideas about materiality and proximity link to historical signifiers that I think are pretty important. And right now we're in a disruptive moment where we've just, you know, with technology, we now can do all sorts of things that are no longer directly linked to how they've been done for eons. Everything from seeking help to getting food to whatever else. I worry sometimes that 
younger generations don't have an analog experience, but it must be that in their interactions with older folks, I'm Gen X, I can remember when there wasn't an internet. I have an analog representation of everything that I do digitally in terms of my experience. Mm. And I think that's really valuable, or I value it. And I, I wonder about young people and what you think might be happening for them, because you know, maybe they've done all of their doctor visits online, or maybe they've done all of their food ordering online, or maybe there's just a, a very tenuous connection to the age-old ways of doing things in the analog. What do you think of that? As I was listening to you, I felt sort of saddened by this picture. And I think it's mostly because of the patients over the last 10 years who are 18, 19, 20, 23. You know, I can think of three or four such people who mostly stayed at home and had crazy sleep schedules and whose social worlds were dominated by folks that they played video games with and who lived who knows where, you know, in Singapore or in Connecticut or in Canada or in Mexico. And that was their world. And it was extremely difficult for these young people to extricate themselves. They would actually, I would insist they come to my office. Mm -hmm. But the tenacity of the viscosity, really, the stickiness of the ways in which they would participate in these other worlds. For one person I can think of specifically, in some ways, he worked out quite a few things. And with my help, always talking about what was going on in the game and what was going on with folks he was playing with and against. And then the trolling that would happen on the side, you know, and what got him angry or upset or feeling abject, right? Or feeling victorious. So there are ways to be creative in dealing with that kind of virtual life, but it saddens me ultimately. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's still connected to the innkeeper metaphor or do you think there's just a... I don't know. I think there's a break. Yeah. I think there's a break. I mean, the, the thing about, of course, meeting somebody else in person is the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. You know, at least you can feel viscerally what it's like to actually say hello to somebody, what it's like to knock on a door. I make a big deal of this in my paper. That's the occasion of you know, this conversation. What does it mean to knock on somebody's door, especially somebody you've never met, but to whom you've traveled to ask for something? You know, listen to my story, listen to my pain. Often patients come to us not really knowing exactly what they want. So I, I find that just that image of and scene of somebody coming and knocking at the door, waiting in the waiting room, extremely moving, actually. You know, it takes a lot of guts for somebody to do that. And I think we all know that having been patients ourselves, what it's like to sit in the waiting room and wait for your analyst to come and greet you. I'm thinking about what that image moves in me compared to what I imagine it might move in the 18-year-old who's embedded in gaming. And I'm thinking about all the different games right now that are multiplayer games where you wait in the wings to be launched into the game. I mean, I'm no gamer, so I can't really speak to this, but there's so many situations where they wait and they're barred from the game or they're included in the game. Then the game happens and they go back to this waiting room, but it's immediate. There's so few 
different things that can happen. You either get accepted or you don't. You either get trolled or you don't. You're either victorious or you're not. It's kind of concrete. Yeah, and very binary, as you're saying. Yeah. Whereas your analyst could, you know, arrive late and then you could have this whole interchange in the waiting room or any number of things could happen. And those things oftentimes are very personal and relevant material for discussion in analysis and in life, frankly. I can't agree with you more. Mm -hmm. You know, Daniel Butler, who you may know, he's a, a candidate at Pink, I believe. He's a graduate student at UC Santa Cruz. And he wrote a paper called The Violence of the Setting, published in Studies in Gender and Sexuality. And it's a Fanonian sort of view of how settings are created and their racialized basis. That's one view. It's a very important one of the history of any piece of land, of any building, which we don't think about as bourgeois practitioners of psychoanalysis, you know, which is deeply class-based, really, historically, and racially-based also. So we don't think about the deep history of where our building, when it was built, who conquered whom or who killed whom to establish title, you know, for a piece of land, all of that which is the deep backstory, actually, for uh, professional work to happen at all, that there are buildings and property and proprietors and landowners. That's actually interesting. You and I are both in the East Bay, which for our listeners who are out of the, the Bay Area is across the bridge from San Francisco in a kind of suburb college town area near San Francisco, certainly urban, but not as densely populated as San Francisco or San Jose. And there's a, a variety of psychoanalysts who have their practices in San Francisco along a street that is very, it's known, I think, colloquially as Shrink Row in San Francisco. And it's, you know, Sacramento Street, it's these beautiful buildings. And I think the history of that land is that that particular area, when very wealthy people came to settle in California during the gold rush times, they built like a a road that went out to the ocean and they built all of these beautiful mansions up on top of this hill to be able to see if anyone would come to steal anything from them. So there are these beautiful mansions all in Pacific Heights that look out over, you know, the water and there was virtually nothing but landfill and sand out points west of there. I believe this is true. And it's interesting because as you start to talk about the history, now our analysts are in some of those buildings or near those buildings above, you know, storefronts, quaint neighborhood, lovely to walk around in. There are analysts all over the city. There are analysts all over, you know, other adjoining cities. We're now everywhere, but that's a concentration of us. And I think it has something to do with settling patterns in the city and when there were people and how long they've owned property. Some of my best friends practice on Sacramento Street and off Sacramento Street. Mine too. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think it continues because once there are analysts in a certain location, someone leaves their office to retire, then another analyst kind of comes in because it's already set up with call lights and other people who are friendly to the profession in the same building. And so it kind of continues, which is interesting. Though I want to add something to that, which is about six or seven years ago, my office flooded my office in Berkeley, a water heater that we weren't aware still had a bunch of water in it, got rusty and leaked. And all of a sudden there's water everywhere. And so that it takes a while, of course, if there's water that's getting your carpet wet and some of your files wet and your analytic couch, the legs are, are all wet, et cetera. Oh no. So that takes about a week to dry all that stuff out and to 
to get rid of stuff that can't be salvaged and all of that. It's extremely disruptive. But what it, the main lesson for me concretely was how fragile the actual setup is. Mm-hmm. And so as you're talking about Sacramento Street and Pacific Heights and wealthy people settling up on the highest perch so they can make sure that they're not going to be somehow robbed or invaded or threatened, all of it is constructed. And it's mostly constructed around race and legal advantages for certain folks and legal disadvantages for others that really dates back centuries now. But it's all socially constructed. I don't mean that in the Erwin Hoffman psychoanalytic sense. I mean that in the sociological sense. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to take us back to your paper. You had several other cases there that that you discussed. Would you like to say more about them? Yeah, sure. So regarding this patient, Thomas, who, as I said, was a martial arts and firearms expert, I mean, to an exquisite degree, lots of training, multiple weekends where he would describe to me having gone off to this place or that place, and former Green Berets were training him and others. He was a born-again Christian of sorts and very, very pro-Israel. Two or three years into the analysis, by the way, he always assumed that I was just a Berkeley liberal, a sort of pathetic Berkeley liberal who who was uh, sort of deluded in my sense of security. And he would tell me that he often looked at police reports of crimes in the area, and he would tell me how dangerous the area in which my office is, and things like that. So I had a dream where I was in the West Bank, right, in Palestine. Mm-hmm. And I'm part of some kind of tourist group, a mix of Jews and Christians. We're in trouble. And there are, again, this is my dream. There are, quote, unquote, Palestinian terrorists with, you know, AK-47s who are about to somehow kill us or take us prisoner or something. And I tell all of us, we need to get out of here. We need to run. And all of a sudden, I'm in a car. I'm alone. And I'm driving on a highway, and I have a choice of either leaning to the right, turning to the right, and heading towards Jerusalem, where I'll be safe, or leaning left and heading back to the West Bank, where I'm sure to be killed. And that's the dream. Mm -hmm. In the paper, what I make of that is that I'm dreaming my patient's world, and this was my way of experientially trying to understand it's a very Bionian, you know, sort of Tom Ogden moment in a way. It's like I'm really dreaming something so I can experience as fully as possible Thomas's world. And it was only after having dreamt that dream and thinking about it seriously that I realized more fully than before that in some ways I was afraid of Thomas. And he was subtly threatening to me, as well as I understood his fear better you know, just in terms of my empathic identification with what he goes through in his life. So the sort of the result of that dream and my working with it myself was to far better appreciate his sense of danger, lack of safety, vulnerability. And also within the transference, counter-transference, my sharing some of those feelings, right? So I felt I was in a much better spot as his analyst to actually help him What I wonder, and as you said, Nicole, there's no way to know, but what I wonder in the paper is, would I have had that West Bank dream 
if he and I were meeting remotely? Would I be worried about his bodily safety and my bodily safety if we weren't meeting in person? Yeah. I mean, it's got me thinking about that classic line that some psychoanalysts say about if you're proximal to one another in the same room, you have the capacity, it's not likely to happen, hopefully, but the capacity to be kissed or kicked. And what that implies is that there would be erotic material that can feel more alive and more threatening or more excitable, and aggressive material that can feel more alive and more distressing in the in-person setting than in the online setting. I think that's fascinating. And that has something to do with being two bodies in a room. And then we have more access to empathy and really understanding another person's world. Yeah, that's my claim. The second case is uh, somebody I call Carl, who entirely different sort of situation. He and I, from the beginning of COVID, had debates about whether meeting remotely was actually necessary at all. Hmm. He had some scientific background. He was knowledgeable. And so he would often talk to me about risk assessment and how lame I was in my (laughs) lack of real capacity and rigor in thinking about risk. Because I, along with many of my colleagues, and presumably your colleagues as well, were meeting with folks remotely, and everybody was just doing that. And so Carl would criticize me for just blindly following everybody else. So in any case, we did start to meet in person again once vaccinations were available. But then when the Delta variant showed up in August of 2021, I wanted to resume wearing an N95 mask for this particular person who came from a very traumatized, kind of abject, very alone background, abandoned really by his parents for a variety of reasons that had nothing to do with him. The N95 mask signified sort of utter rejection of him. That's what it meant to him, that he was so toxic that I had to protect myself with a mask. That obviously there are a lot of analytic work and just basic human relating and trying to understand his concerns and struggles and and really panic about what the mask signified. It was hard work. But my point in the paper is would, I mean, I think this would not have happened if we were meeting remotely, right? Because there's no reason to wear a mask if a patient's in their car, in their house, and I'm in my office looking at them over a computer screen. But I mean, our own experience as patients, which is coming to your analyst's office, there's often, or there used to be at least, this is before phones. So when I was in analysis, it was before phones. So I was already thinking about something, right? I was entering into a certain kind of space, psychologically and emotionally and imaginatively. And upon leaving, the same thing. And as we know now, many patients are on their phone, not only coming to the office, but in the waiting room. And the second they leave, they're back on their phone. So there's a way in which technology short circuit what you're describing is really a much longer process, I think, traditionally, let's say. This is interesting. What I wonder about what people are searching for or not searching for or looking at or not looking at and what they still have in their minds as they're approaching their analyst's office or leaving and whether or not there isn't some dynamic going on between what they're searching for and what they're still thinking about or starting to think about or feeling or whatever. I'm curious about that. I know we won't know, but Yeah, it's obviously a very important question and something that's very hard to know about unless we asked specifically, which I don't think I've ever done. 
Now, this is a very interesting thing. I've never thought about it before until this moment. So I come into the waiting room, I greet the patient, and they turn off their phone. Now, I haven't ever said, I'm curious what you were looking at, you know, in the waiting room, or what was it like for me to interrupt you? That's a little different question than what were you looking at? My point is what I realize it feels quite private, what the patient's doing, mm-hmm. as if they're in a daydream or a reverie, you know, an internal sort of experience that we may not want to interrupt, you know. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I mean, I'm thinking about patients who meet with their analyst online, they sometimes also scroll at the same time. How that's used or not used in the analytic session or how, you know, when they're on phone sessions, for example, people will sometimes tell me that they're scrolling and I'll ask them, what are you scrolling for? You know, what is it you're you're looking at? Because that's now part of our session. Right. And it's fascinating because it becomes part of the session. Yeah, I think that's right on. Among the people who I think is especially smart about writing about teletherapy is Lena Ehrlich. Mm-hmm. She's an analyst in Michigan and a serious, thoughtful person who, it seems to me, is very alert to these sort of liminal, marginal experiences and will encourage analysts to bring them into the session somehow, because as you say, they are part of the session. And it's quite easy, and I know that I'm vulnerable to this myself, of not quite being sort of assiduous enough or I think it's really thoughtful enough to think about ways to bring that stuff in because it's easy to sort of have it split off. Yeah. And I don't think we've really come as a profession to really analyze what is the meaning of the what and the how and the when people are scrolling or searching or looking and and so on. I, I would find it super interesting to know more about that. We don't. It reminds me to riff a little bit of work that an analyst on the East Coast, well, two I can think of, Lindsay Clarkson and Shelley Rockwell, who write about sort of, I would call it echo psychoanalysis. They're very interested in climate change and trying to figure out the relationship between the urban environment and the more natural environment and, and how to bring in, let's just call it for simplicity's sake, the natural environment into the clinical session. Mm-hmm and the ways in which patients might split off. Let's say to bring it close to home, you know, there's a fire and the air is terrible, but the patient may be reluctant to talk about that. So they're interested in how to bring in the outside world, especially related to the so-called natural world into the clinical work. And you're talking about bringing in the technological world into the clinical work. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm a little bit afraid that it's shaping our psyches. And so I'm wondering to what extent we really have to include it always. And I'm not quite sure how to do that. Yeah. Sherry Turkle especially talks about technology literally changing our very being. Yeah. And for those young people who spend so much time immersed in it, and during that time when the brain is so pliable and it's pruning, I wonder if it's actually quite literally changing the structure of our brains. Mm, Yeah. Hmm. This is a really uplifting moment, isn't it? (laughs) What do you think the role of the psychoanalyst is in our techno future or the post-human age as people talk about it or post-singularity now that we have AI everywhere? I am certainly not the person to make any definitive statements in response to that question. But I'm interested in your thoughts anyway. (laughs) What I do think is that psychoanalysis 
has always been a marginal practice. It's always been eccentric to the main sort of zeitgeist and sort of certainly the main ideological currents of any given age, because it's always interrogating received wisdom and really trying to help folks in their particularity emerge more as subjects themselves, you know, not based on any ideology or any standard of so-called health, certainly not heteronormativity or anything like that, or healthy object relations even. I think there's all different kinds of ways in which psychoanalysis has imposed a certain kind of hegemonic ideological thing on patients forever. So we're against that. That's not a good thing. And in the increasingly digitalized world, I think we offer even something especially important regarding countering the prevailing notions of subjectivity and the ideological and all of that, because we're interested in conversation. We're interested in dialogue. We're interested in open-mindedness. I think of something that Tom Ogden said years ago. This is a Winnicottian point, but he was the one who taught it to me and, and my fellow candidates, which is the importance of privacy, sort of a healthy kind of privacy, a lack of intrusiveness. Like the, the analyst needs to be mindful of you know, what Winnicott called the non-communicating part of the personality, which is a healthy part. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. So I think about the analytic sensibility and analytic practice as being ever more important, given the kinds of societal trends you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I want to just go back to one point that you've made before in your paper that's forthcoming about non-being and just see if, if you can express a little bit about what that is and what it means for our work. And Yeah, so thanks for asking about that. So in the last part of the paper, as I said, the first two-thirds of the paper really center on these two cases, which is very much about the concrete aspects of meeting in person, whether it's with Thomas and his canvassing the office for weapons or Carl and the signification of the N95 mask and, and all of that. But when I was starting to work in the office again after the uh, vaccines were available and booster shots were available. There were a few patients who were reluctant to return to the office. And they would say a variety of things about it, but they felt very safe in wherever they were that they spoke to me most of the time. And in the paper, I have a bunch of quotes from different folks who one way or another voiced this sense of, gee, I'm not really sure I want to come back. I really like talking to you from, you know, X, wherever X is. I like having my cat in my lap. I like being able to look out into the hills as I talk from my car, you know, things like that. One patient whom I call Lydia said, it's far too quiet in your office. There's something that she found, I think, literally scary. And I wasn't sure what she meant by that. And that's the final case that I describe in some detail because she and I were, had been talking about terminating you know, an analysis or ending an analysis after a long time. And we were speaking on the phone because of COVID, but with vaccinations and boosters available, I wanted her to come back to the office so we could meet in person for the last few months of, of our work. And she was reluctant. And there's sort of some semi-comical back and forth 
that I describe mm-hmm. and also not so comical aspects to that. But And I do all kinds of sort of conventional analytic interpretive work there, none of which lands at all. In fact, it just alienates her more. And then finally I say to her, um, so you don't want to come back in person for the rest of the time that we're meeting. Is that right? She says, yes, that's right. And so I say, well, let me just say, I don't like it. That's what I (laughs) said. Let me just say, I don't like it. And that immediately sort of brought her back to, I don't know, somehow we were in contact again or connected again. And what she said was that when I said, I don't like it, I came into focus for her. A lot of the psychoanalytic interpretations I was giving, you know, about her, whatever, they were all defense interpretations, of course, Mm -hmm. none of which landed and all of which which alienated her, understandably. But I came into focus. I was back as her analyst when I said, I don't like it. And, you know, she walked to my office for the rest of the time that we met. But when she did come back and she talked about how eerily quiet it is, it wasn't that I'm quiet because I tend to be quite chatty. But it's that there's something about when there is silence, she finds it or found it, as she described me, as if she's in outer space or as if I might disappear forever. She talked about vanishing and ghosting and referenced the way that birth certificates and death certificates represent the birth or death, the presence or absence of a human body. And so all of that got me thinking about Blaher's idea of non-process. You know, Blaher was a South American analyst who wrote a very justly well-cited paper on the psychoanalytic frame in the 60s. And Blaher said that the analytic frame is what we take for granted, essentially. It's all this, a lot of the stuff that I've been talking about, the traveling to the office, the greeting in the waiting room, the speaking, the listening the paying for the sessions, and all of those arrangements. But when there's a disruption in the frame, then he said ghosts emerge. He likened these ghosts to very early semi-psychotic sort of symbiotic fantasies that the patient has about the mother, mostly. That's what Blaher argued. But regarding non-process and process, for Blaher, it was always the, there's always the possibility that when there's a disruption in the frame, one way or another, it can be recouped through symbolic means. You know, we can talk about it, basically. We can process it. But I was interested in what Lydia said about the silence and about absence and about life and death. And it occurred to me that the prospect of coming back to the office on some very, very fundamental level, evokes this knowledge, I would say, that we all have about non-being, about not being here at all. Mm. And that if we're at home, we can always zoom here and zoom there and appear and disappear in an omnipotent way. But if we're with another person in a closed space talking about the most intimate things, it does sort of touch on this other realm that I call non-being or non-process. I link it up, not particularly convincingly, but sort of suggestively with Derrida's early ideas about the trace and difference 
notions that he tried to uh, describe regarding the basis of anything having meaning at all. So that's the best I can do regarding non-being. It's interesting because I started to think about, and I wrote a little bit about, once we start zooming places, we are essentially cheating death because we're ignoring our living bodies that have to move through space and time. So once we start to spring over time, we're becoming, I don't know, somehow there's some cost that we have to pay in our beingness and in our understanding of the vitality of things. I'm not sure if that's defensible, but it's something that I'm wondering about is, does this cumulative zooming everywhere and PayPal and whatever else like add up to lack of vitality? I think that's additive to what I'm saying, for sure. It's kind of what I was saying at the beginning about, I think I was referencing the wide world of sports, you know, the uh, thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, but, you know, that you experience when you actually greet another person. Mm-hmm. Live, I mean, in person, you know, body in the same space as the other body. So that has to do with vitality, it seems to me. It also has to do with the knowledge that it all might go away. Mm-hmm. And that you've had to suffer however much to get to that place on a train from your social location, which is defined by historic race and class and so on. Like there's all of this stuff that's built into that whole embodied encounter that seems important. I would say so. I would insist on it. But, you know, maybe in 10 years, we'll have this conversation again and see. Yeah, I'm sure we'll keep having this conversation for 10 years. I have one more thing that I thought before we kind of close. I'm wondering what you think about whether or not psychoanalysts with all of our thinking about the analytic hour and the frame and teleanalysis and so on, have anything to offer the general public in terms of taking our thinking, and I'm going to use a metaphor here that's, I'm sure, offensive, clicking and dragging it and putting it onto onto all technologically mediated interactions. So things like ordering food or using PayPal or whatever. Does all of this click and drag and make sense in those arenas too? Are you talking about vitality still or lack of? I guess I'm talking about everything that we've been talking about. You know, altogether, do you think that what we've been talking about is relevant in every technologically mediated interaction we have at all, not just the analytic hour. Uh, yeah, yeah. So as I go to the online party or the online speech of somebody, or I order food or I pay things or I send an invoice, is that all also lacking vitality and not giving the other person enough of a sense of who I am, whoever that, that other person may be, even if it's just the Uber Eats driver or you know whomever else is on the other side? I don't know. I wouldn't go that far, I think, because Part of what we're describing is, for some folks at least, to maximize a certain kind of set of experiences, which would include in-person experiences. So you may not have time to do X, Y, or Z because you want to see a friend or something, or you want to have them over for dinner, but you don't have time to go to the market, or you want to check out a lecture that's taking place somewhere far away. And then you're going to go somewhere else in person. You know, it seems like there's all kinds of sort of hybridization of life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's interesting. I guess I wonder if we're all those trade-offs, if somehow we're losing something about having to talk to and develop relationships over time with the local shopkeepers and the local bus drivers and whomever else that we skip over in order to maintain the lectures that we want to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's think about Walter Benjamin just for a second. So the brilliant, you know, sort of social theorist who lived in the early 20th century, 
who loved walking cities and wrote about Paris, for example, and the arcades and what urban life was like. He was fascinated by all kinds of things, right? There's this great book, One Way Street, that Creel Marcus wrote an introduction to, and it's all about sort of the magic and the mystery of different cultural artifacts in carnivals and puppet shows and things like that. So what would a Benjamin do now? I don't know, you know, because <laughs> uh, would he be walking around as much? Well, maybe he would, but we could imagine him somehow being cut off at the knees with technology. Yeah. What would our meeting be like today if we were meeting in person? We're recording this over Zoom. I would have much preferred it. Yeah, me too. Somehow it the sound quality is easier this way, but I don't have a sound setup that works for two people being in the same location. But yeah, there's a loss in that somehow. Huh. Well, is there anything else you'd like to say about your paper, about anything we've spoken about at all? Not that I can think of at the moment. I really want to thank you, Nicole, for inviting me. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, it has. I, I agree. We've been speaking with Dr. Mitchell Wilson. Thank you so much for sharing your ideas with us. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you. Thank you all for listening to Technology in the Mind. Next month, we'll be speaking with Dr. Patricia Garovici about the psychoanalytic understandings of porn. Please join us at Technology in the Mind on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to this episode of Technology in the Mind. If you would like to learn more about psychoanalysis and technology, please visit the Center for Psychoanalysis and Technology at www.centerforpsychoanalysisandtech.com. For additional episodes of Technology in the Mind, you can find us wherever you find your podcasts.